Welcome to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. This week, Philip Edwards continues his journey through the tabernacle, explaining the importance of the symbolism of the tabernacle and how when we understand it, we will recognise the plan that God has for our lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and events. I'll share the little story with you that um, uh, after last week we listened to the recording and uh, the first half was really very good. Something went really wonky with the second half. We put that out, but of course it was far from the quality we wanted. So I found myself in my bedroom last week preaching the whole 45 minutes again to myself. Uh, So we were able to put up a decent recording for the second half. So, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I did. Yeah, I put my hand up at the end, you know, and I responded. Yeah, yeah. Some of this, some of this. Okay. So let's just pray before we start, because we want to uh, just present ourselves before God we're always before you lord we know but we've gathered in this uh, special way to uh, to make ourselves available to hear from you uh, about this subject uh, lord we want you to anoint my lips so that uh, i speak clearly and the thoughts flow and there's an anointing upon myself and also those that are listening that their ears are anointed too in a way it's the ears that are anointed that are more important than the speaker because in what they receive can transform and change lives. So we present ourselves to you and we say, come Holy Spirit, come into this meeting this evening and reveal Jesus Christ to us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Right, tonight we're going to focus, we sort of started just last week on the symbols of the tabernacle because that's what it's all about, looking at what they represent to us. We discovered last week that uh, the tabernacle was a shadow, it says in Hebrews there, or a copy of something that was designed in heaven. So God designed this, this was his design. And we know that when Moses was called up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God gave him the plans, he was under strict orders to do it exactly like he said. Everything you make, the size of it, the shape of it, the position of it, the color of it, what it's made of, has to be exactly like I tell you. The reason, because it would be used to teach for generations and generations to come as we are now doing it, thousands and thousands of years later, we're looking at these things, the colours, the shapes, the patterns, knowing that God designed all this so he could communicate things to us. We said that the, the pattern had multiple applications. You could consider the nature of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You could consider the nature of heaven, first, second and third. All of these things have three parts to them, just as the tabernacle has three parts in an outer court, a holy place and the holy of holies. We could look at the nature of life, children, young men and fathers. We could look at the nature of man himself, that he is a body, he has a soul and a spirit that dwells within him, the three parts. Our study is going to relate to the nature of man, body, soul, and spirit. I also emphasized last week that God um, has a plan for the Christian life. 
the plan of course is to get saved but then it's to go on to maturity there is a danger if we just get saved it's like being a child all our lives never moving on and you're thinking surely who would want that well unfortunately there are lots of Christians that don't actually move on they don't pursue God they don't press on in now God's calling us and wooing us and and he wants us to do it but because of sometimes the breakdown in the church the teaching isn't there the emphasis the churches might have people lose sight of things often in churches teaching is lost all sorts of teaching about different things is just not found in the church and so from time to time the Holy Spirit comes and re-emphasizes a teaching that has been lost over the years and you think oh what's this new teaching remember that in the scripture they said when Jesus came and delivered somebody he said what's this new teaching and because within the church sometimes we think oh we've got our Christianity sorted out then someone like me comes along and people say oh what's that new teaching well it's it's not new it's it's been there and it's in the scriptures and in going on to maturity there is no going on unless we first lay a foundation in our lives we looked at a building you can't build a building on sand even Jesus taught us that he said you must build your building on a solid rock if you build it on sand it will collapse and so often in our Christian lives unless we've built on a solid foundation our Christian lives will come when the storms come that it'll just collapse so and we looked at those foundational teachings we looked last week when we started really uh, in earnest on the tabernacle we looked at the three areas and uh, we discovered something unique about them we're going to do a lot more of looking at the symbolism this evening but just let remind you of that we said in the three areas the outer court the holy place and the holy of holies we said they represented the body the soul and the spirit of a man and what we looked at first was how these three different areas were illuminated we said that the outer court would be illuminated by the sun and the moon and the stars and this referred to our natural senses when we first come to Christ we come with our natural senses we we read about him in the Gospels or someone tells us about him and so we approach Christ with our natural senses we start to understand with our natural senses we mustn't stay in that place interpreting the Word of God and the things of God with our natural senses we have to move into the holy place where then the only thing that illuminates the holiest place is the menorah the seventh branch candlestick which is fueled by the oil of the Spirit so there the Spirit of God brings revelation to us it's called revealed truth we move on from sense knowledge to revealed truth and then eventually we get into the holiest of holies and we know that that's a completely dark square cube box as it were and the only thing that will illuminate that is the Shekinah glory of God the only thing we see in there the only thing we appreciate in there is God himself in the holy place it's a place of service in the holy of holies it's just God that's where we're going in our journey from the outer court into the very presence the Shekinah glory of God where then we receive divine revelation from God
sense knowledge, revealed truth, divine revelation from God. Sometimes God touches us with something wonderful from the holiest of holies, which only causes us to want more. Maybe you've been in a meeting and you go, wow, that was just something else. Like, or, or God has come into your room and you can't even speak. All you can do is lie down, prostrate on the floor and think, I'm in the presence of God here. And then it, it goes, doesn't it? It's as much as to say, come on, come on up, come on up. I want you to live in this experience more and more so it becomes very familiar to us. So this evening we continue with the symbolism of the tabernacle. We're going to look first at the the successive entrances into the uh, three portions that there are. You'll see the gate at the front and there's a, like a curtain across it you can see from the model and then there's two other uh, gates that we have to go through to get into the holy place and uh, I've got my uh, chart here uh, to write on. If people are on the um, podcast uh, it's good if you have some pictures in front of you of the tabernacle so when I'm talking to people about and drawing things on the flip chart you can look at the pictures and it makes a whole lot more sense to you so I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that you can't see this although if everything works good on our filming we'll be able to get it all up and running soon so there are three uh, gateways that we have to go through here and each gateway has a number of uh, posts or pillars to it. This one has four. This is all significant. Like I said, God gave the orders for all of these things. So he's numbered everything, he's coloured everything, he's positioned everything. Here we have five posts. Now, if you were a structural engineer like myself, you'd only put five posts in there because if you needed five posts there, you'd need five posts there. Oh no, it's nothing to do with how structurally sound it is. Probably two posts could have held it up, but he puts then four posts here. Now these posts obviously represent things and we're going to look at these four gateways, uh, sorry, these three gateways to see what each of them represents. We initially are outside and so we've got to come through this door and then through the second door which takes us into the holy place and through the third door which takes us into the holy of holies so that's where we're going to start this evening and that's where we're going jesus said an interesting thing when he was um, in the last supper with his uh, they were the apostles really there were 12 because judas left and there was 11 and then if you read from john 13 to 18 that's a that's a that's a lot of scripture that just deals with that whole evening when they were in the upper room at the last supper it was thomas that came to jesus because jesus said he was going and uh, he said he, that he was going to the father and he said something like this show me the way to the father or show us the Father, Philip said as well, and that will be enough for us. That's an interesting little passage of Scripture, isn't it? As Philip said, listen, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That's what life's all about. Philip knew that. Philip knew that all it was, life was about seeing God, being with God, realising everything he could about God and understanding God. So, of course, Jesus' response is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Mm, don't think they quite got it, okay. It's good with hindsight knowing who Jesus was, but if you were living with him at the time, you might have been a bit nervous about some of the things that Jesus was saying. But in John 14 and 6, it says this, Jesus answered them, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, what a lovely answer that was. How clear. So, someone who wants to get to God, so we'll put God in the Holy of Holies, someone who wants to get to God is only going to be possible, assisted or taken there by Jesus himself. And Jesus says, to get to the Father, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So what I'm going to suggest to you these three doors are called the way, the truth, and the life. So, through the first door, Jesus is going to show us the way. This is the way in. In here, we are going to learn the truth. Because remember in there is where we received revealed truth from the Holy Spirit. This is where the menorah is lighting up everything, telling you the revealed truth. In here, when we're in the presence of God, this is the life. So unless you're living constantly in the presence of God, you are not fully entered into the life that God has for you. Now, when we pass from this world to the next and, and God has come and he dwells amongst us, we will be in the life. That's the life that God always designed for us. That was the life that God designed for Adam and Eve and what they enjoyed at the beginning. God living in the midst of them, God being their God, they being his people and he living amongst them. That was the life. Of course, they forfeited that when they rebelled. So Jesus then is the way. He is the way in. Jesus is the way into this place and he wants to reveal something to us. <coughs> Salvation is real and historical. It is not simply theological. It is not a theory. It is something that is real. So in here, in this place where we live by sense knowledge, it's in here that we meet Jesus. We meet the person of Jesus, that the person of Jesus is presented to us. We have to meet him to go on this journey. I don't know if you can remember the first time someone spoke to you about Jesus or you read about Jesus, or you went to a meeting and you met this person, Jesus. You, you didn't physically see him, although in the time of Christ they physically saw him. You were presented to him and the question was, do you believe what these people are saying to you? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be? You, you appreciate him, you apprehend him with your sense knowledge. Someone is saying to you that you're a sinner. I don't know about that concept, you say. Someone is saying to you there is a God. And, and, and God has sent Jesus to die on a cross to forgive you of your sins. 
and they're presenting this man to you this man Jesus so you're understanding him with your sense knowledge what are you going to do with that laugh mock walk away if that's the case then the Holy Spirit can't come and confirm truth to you but if if by some reason I don't, I don't know why it is you open yourself up to this is true I know I need someone I know my life isn't quite what it's meant to be I oh I've been looking for something and I don't know what I'm looking for perhaps it's this man Jesus so with our sense knowledge as we start to open ourselves up to the truth and the reality of who he is that's when the Holy Spirit comes and confirms to us in here who Jesus Christ is every man every woman in the world I believe can receive Jesus Christ with his sense knowledge and believe that he is who he claims to be I want to share with you four pictures of Jesus that we find in the Gospels I have to read to you a couple of passages one from Ezekiel and the other from Revelation it says this in Ezekiel 1 5 and 10 and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures in appearance their form was like that of a man their faces looked like this each of the four had the face of a man and on the right side each had the face of a lion and on the left each had the face of an ox and each had the face of an eagle so just try and imagine what Ezekiel was drawing for you this picture and you can read it in your own time he sees in a dream in a vision as it were this man standing before him he had manly form he had a face of a man face of an ox on this side a face of a lion and the face of an eagle behind him and then in Revelation John on the Isle of Patmos he gets almost a similar thing listen what he says he says in the center around the throne Revelation 4 7 in the center around the throne were four living creatures so he saw this time four creatures around the throne and they were covered with eyes on their front and on their back and in front and behind sorry the eyes the first living creature was a lion the second was an ox the third had the face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle so we get revelation at the end of the new testament lining up with the passage in ezekiel which is in the old testament all of these are pictures of Jesus in the Gospels let me just break down for you what the four Gospels what pictures there are of Jesus in the Gospels if you read through the book of Matthew what we read about Jesus there he is portrayed as the king Jesus is the king and so when you read Matthew have that in the back of your mind I'm reading about Jesus as a king you'll find things like a genealogy why because you're interested in the genealogy of a king not interested in the genealogy of, of of no one who's of any importance 
all the prophecies are found in Matthew because the king is prophesied as coming. He is depicted by the lion, the face of the lion. In Mark's gospel, we read about Jesus as being the servant. In Mark chapter 1, it starts, it rushes into, within a, within a chapter of Mark, this man Jesus is busy doing stuff like a servant is busy doing so the picture in mark's gospel of jesus is he is the servant who has come again reading mark's gospel always have in your mind this is the servant that we're talking about here of course the the animal that is represented as the servant is the ox treading out the corn doing all the work the lion is the king the ox is the servant in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the Son of God or the Son of Man. And so he is depicted as a man, a perfect man, the pinnacle of God's creation, the head of a man. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is depicted as the Son of God. So when you read John's Gospel, it's very almost more spiritual than all the other books because it's depicting Christ himself as God, which is the eagle. The eagle is one that can look into the sun, that is above everything, that looks down, as it were. So the eagle depicts Jesus as the Son of God. Salvation is based on the knowledge of a real human being revealed. Jesus was a real human revealed to be God by the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ was a real man, your theology is wrong. If you don't believe that he was the Son of God who came in human bodily form, if you don't believe that, you're not even born again. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh in human form as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis, he wrote something like this. When you consider the man Jesus, he was either mad, I mean completely off his rocker, just, just was beyond, he just like was a madman saying the things that he said, because he did say many times that he was God. Without a doubt. Remember all the times we said, when he said, I am, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world. He is saying, I am God, every time. That's what wound the, the poor Jewish people up. They knew what he was saying in declaring himself as the I am. He was either mad or he was deceived. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He thought he was God. And so he was just a deceived man. Or you can believe that he was who he said he was. A man who was the Son of God. You have to, you have to make that decision. People who think he's mad or deceived never step into the kingdom. They never step past here. Okay, so we can see now what these four posts represent. Do you see what they represent? They represent Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're showing you this man, Christ Jesus. So you get here, 
if you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, you come this far. You go through the first door, the first gate. That's the easiest one of all. It gets tougher as you go along. Everything gets tougher in this life as you go along. We know that. So you, you, you hear about who Jesus is, you accept who he is, and then you move through. When you accept who Jesus claims to be, it is then the Holy Spirit confirms him to you. And then you are born again and that same Holy Spirit comes and lives within the inside of you. So Jesus is the way of salvation for all people. For all people. To be saved, we must go through the door of Jesus, the physical living Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the second one now. We're going to try and get through this second door here and we've got five pillars here. These five pillars represent to us. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said, I won't leave you, I'll send someone to help you. And of course we know who he was talking about, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. But he didn't only send us the Holy Spirit, did he? He sent others as well to help us. It says when he ascended, he sends gifts of men to the church, and we know these to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So to move on into this next phase, to move into the holy place, we have to be very attentive or appreciative of what Christ has sent to help us through into the next stage, which is the fivefold ministry gifts and also the Holy Spirit. Because this area, remember, is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And these fivefold ministries have been sent to the church to help us move on further into that. It says in Ephesians 4.11, it was he, that's Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. What for? To prepare God's people for the works of service. If I stand in one of those offices tonight as a teacher, I'm not the important one. You are. It's my job to train you up to do all the work. That's a good deal, isn't it? So the apostles come, the, the prophets come, the pastors come. Not that they lord it over you, that they're the big spiritual ones, that they're the ones that do everything. Their job is to raise you up so that you do the job, that your giftings are fully released in the body of Christ. That if there's a teacher amongst you, you don't just sit there for the next 40 years, but you step forward into the gifting that God has given you and you start to teach. If you're a prophetic type person, you don't just sit there, but you step forward and you start being prophetic to the nation, prophetic to the people of God, prophetic in your community. You start speaking clearly what God is saying, separating black from white. If you're apostolic, you're the sort of person who wants to get involved with planting churches and, and seeing people come into the kingdom of God. And we know evangelists love to be inspired to share the word of God. Sometimes we look at these ministries and we say, here's the evangelist, listen to him. Well, 
His job, the evangelist, is to come and raise the giftings of evangelism in the church so you come become the evangelist. We're lazy sometimes, aren't we? It, it works two ways. Those people love, love to be in that office keeping you down and we are quite comfortable just sitting around allowing them to think that they're supposed to be doing anything. It's not that way. It's not the way the Bible teaches it. To ask you a question if these these giftings have been sent to the church they weren't just sent at the beginning they've been sent all the time otherwise the church would have dried up and died when the first lot died they would have all died so so God has sent millions over the years of apostles prophets pastors evangelists and teachers to the church they're in the church today I want you to tell me which of these has affected your life? Which apostles, prophets, pastors and teachers have affected your life? You see, you can say, well, the Holy Spirit has affected me, but he didn't only send the Holy Spirit. He sent these fivefold ministries. So, so can you name one of them? Can you name them? You think, well, that's unfair, Phil. Give me a bit of time to think and help me along here. Well, have you ever sat in the ministry of a church where the pastor was really good and inspired you and, and encouraged you to grow and go on and, and discover things? You go, see, he was one of them. He was a pastor who loved you and cared for you and nurtured you and, and brought you on. And you think, yes, have you heard a Bible teacher who teaches you things? I'll give you a list of the ones that have affected my life. Derek Prince, Tim Keller, Tom Wright, C.S. Lewis, Henry Nguyen, F.B. Meyer, Dallas Willard, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.T. Kendall, Brother Lawrence. I could go on and on and on. And you say you're cheating, Philip. They're on your bookshelf. Well, of course they are. Half of them are dead, you know, because the wonderful things that these people taught and inspired, God moved upon them in such a way that he got them to write it all down in books because he knew that they would be needed for generation and generation and generation to come. And going back hundreds or even thousands of years, you can go back and there are writings by these apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists and teachers that we need to draw upon to move on, to move on into this. If there was nothing and we couldn't get anything, we would be totally dependent on just the Holy Spirit. But we have, we in the West, we have access to all these. You might say, well, I don't like reading. Well, it isn't about reading now. <laughs> with all this technical stuff, when it works, okay, bless you, okay, <laughs> with all this technical stuff, you can go blub, blub, blub on your phone and you can be preached at with fantastic preaching by great apostles and prophets of God. We don't have an excuse. See, we have to stand before God one day and give an account of everything. He says that. You give an account of everything you've ever done. Even if you've given a cup of water to the least of one of these, it's all recorded. And so if you've ignored the ministry of the apostles and prophets, that's to your account, especially when it's so free. Some countries can't get this. They would love it. But we that have so much of it, sometimes, you know, yeah, I've got to use the word, we despise it somewhat. 
familiarity it brings contempt we can't be bothered you have to be careful the third curtain here so the third curtain has four pillars here it says Christ has been made unto us wisdom holiness righteousness and redemption those are the four pillars that we look to there Jesus took us through here it was fairly simple to come through here Christ took us through the next group here through the teaching here and brought us into this place now we've got to push into the holiest of holies I said last week about the curtain that hung down in the temple it was 60 feet high I can't imagine what it weighed I could google it couldn't I and it will tell me I found this you can google anything it'll tell you anything I don't know if it's right but it'll give you an answer okay how heavy was the curtain that was in the temple see David's on it straight away he's going to look it up for me but because this you couldn't go through this we we learned last week that the people of the Old Testament could never go the people of the Old Testament couldn't even go in here they had to live out here but we need to go into here now let me tell you something about this curtain let me read you this passage from Hebrews 10 19 and 20 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the most holy place do you have confidence to go into the presence of God do you feel that you can do that therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place and it's by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body so what does that mean how does the curtain become his body I think we touched on this last week when Jesus went to the cross the flesh was ripped off his body with the beatings and that and that you could passage Isaiah said it was like a ploughed field and other passages said you could almost see his bones through through the flesh that had been ripped off his body so his body if we look at that is like the curtain that when ripped and he died that big curtain was opened up in fact it was ripped from top to bottom for us it says in Matthew 27 50 and 51 and when Jesus had carried out again uh, sorry and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice he gave up his spirit and that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the way into God's holiest here is through this rip curtain which is Christ's body Christ shows us that the way in is through torn flesh our life of flesh and I'll have to again it's a little play on words here our life of flesh must be torn from our bodies if we are to stand in God's presence now flesh is the human nature that which cannot be regenerated 
that which cannot be sanctified. You can't save the old nature of someone. It has to be ripped off us. It has to be torn away from us so we can enter into his presence. I preached this once and uh, I was told in no uncertain terms I could never go back to the church again. The idea being that Christ has opened a way, Christ was the one that suffered, Christ went in, and now we can just saunter in behind him as it were. Well, I don't believe that to be true. Now, you know what I'm saying? When I say I don't believe it, it means you can believe anything you like. Things I know, things I believe, and things I think. So these, these particular people thought, they believed, and they're, they're right to believe what they want to believe, and we believe what we want to believe. So much of this Christianity stuff, you've got to work it out yourself. You go, no, just tell me, Phil, tell me what to believe. No, 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 because I'll get it wrong sometimes. Most certainly I'll get it wrong, okay? I don't want to get it wrong. I'm not planning to get it wrong, but this is how I see it now. And, and so we have to work stuff out. There's a lot of stuff to work out yourself when it comes to this uh, gospel and this salvation stuff. So, of course, I don't think I can just saunter into the presence of God because Christ's flesh was torn away and he opened up a way for me. I don't think so. See, if I spend a whole evening looking at pornographic stuff, right? And then someone says, can you just come and pray with me a minute? I'm gonna feel, uh, no, I don't think I wanna pray. Why not? Because I don't feel in a good place. I'm more respectful of coming into the presence of God, having done that. You see, you're not allowed to preach that today. Because it's not grace, you see. Grace, cheap grace, it makes out you can do just what you like. And it's fine. The doors are open, just come on in. I don't believe that to be true for one minute. I don't think you'd want to go into the presence of God having spent half the day doing things that you knew you shouldn't do. You just wouldn't do it. You, you wouldn't disrespect the presence of God that much. I can't imagine that. And yet some people are very blasé about their Christian life. It's as though God, it's just grace, it's grace, it's grace upon grace and it doesn't matter. Or it does. It does. We have to get it right to get into his presence. But when we are in Christ, when he has been made unto us wisdom, holiness, righteousness and redemption when he comes into us and Christ is living through us we are in him and he is in us listen to what it says in Colossians 3 5 to 10 it says put to death therefore whatever belongs to the earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Not coming to you. Goes on to say, you used to walk in these ways. This is what your life used to be like. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. It's not like that anymore. You used to walk in these things in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. He makes it sound so simple. It's like a coat. Take it off and put on the new one. When we have committed ourselves fully unto God, it's easy. It's easy. It's, it's, it's what marriage is all about, isn't it? If we're fully committed to the person that we're married to, fully committed, it's easy. If we're not, it's blooming hard. In fact, it's impossible. See, it's about death to self and commitment to the other. So I have to die to Philip, death to self, death to what I want, death to what I decide to do. And Christ who lives in me, he makes the decisions. He chooses. He decides. When someone slaps me across the face, I know what to do. I give them the other cheek. When someone says he hates me, I just pour showers of blessing upon him. Blessing, blessing, blessing. You go, Philip, be realistic. See if I do anything else. It's Philip living. It's not Christ living in me. There you go. This is going to take a long time. It takes as long as you want. As long as you want. You might not get there. You know, I said last week it takes 60 years. I did frighten a lot of people about saying it takes 60 years. I'm sorry about that. I was just likening it to we've got to grow up. Children, young men, fathers, you can't be old before you're young. But, but it takes time. But listen... The quicker you die, the quicker you die, the quicker the life of Christ can come through you. It just takes a long time to die. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy unto God, pleasing unto him, and then you will know his goodwill and his plan and purpose for your life. If you don't die, you'll never know the plan of God for your life. He's not going to give it to you until you're dead. So die die to self and the plan of God will be revealed because while you still got your plan he's not going to give you his it's so simple is it hard to die well you think it is because I'm stubborn and resistant and rebellious and strong-willed and whatever whatever you say you are that's what makes the problem since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator you are being renewed in the image and the knowledge of God be ye imitators of God love has God loved 
it's possible and doable. It is. To dwell in God's presence is to live in Christ. Stop following Christ. Stop following Christ. Live in Him. Live in Him. You know, as a child, when you heard Bible stories or something, um, you'd, uh, you, your imagery as a child, and I remember uh, my Sunday school teacher saying, followers of Jesus. And so, because in my child mind, there was Jesus striding out, and there was Philip walking behind him, a follower of Jesus. Stop following Jesus. Stop following Jesus. Let Jesus dwell on the inside of you. So you become one with him. He has made unto you wisdom, holiness, righteousness and redemption. His wisdom comes into you. His holiness comes into you. His righteousness comes into you. And his redemption comes into you. And it's all by faith. I have discovered in this Christian walk that God gives me everything. It says, you have received everything for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And at the same time, he gives me nothing. He gives me nothing. Because everything I get from God, I get it by faith. So God says, here Phil, here's my wisdom. I say, thank you, Lord. No, he says, you've got to take it. You've got to take it by faith. Here is my righteousness, Phil, but you've got to take it by faith. You've got to make it yours. I have the mind of Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Once we realize what is available and we claim it by faith to be ours and we see what it means to walk in it and we start to walk in it, God gives us the grace to walk in these things. It's by faith. All the gifts of the Spirit that you can operate in, it's by faith. You say, oh, I'd love to prophesy. Well, stand up and do it then. Oh, how will I know? Because Paul said, I would that you all prophesy. That's enough for me. I'll get up on Sunday morning and I'll prophesy in the church. I'll speak out the oracles of God. Ooh, ooh. Well, your church might not like it. They might not want it. I don't know. But you see, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not magic. God doesn't come and, and do something on you and then whack you. You just think the word of God says. So it's mine by faith. So let's go do this thing. Let's go forward in it. So we've, we've looked at the, we've looked at the different areas, the outer court, the holy place and the holy of holies. We've looked at what the, uh, the pillars represent and the different doorways uh, into the very presence of God to deal now with the coverings that are over the tabernacle 
this technically is the tabernacle the tent the dwelling place of God although it's also referred to the whole thing but this is simply the outer court and this is the linen uh, fence that went around but so we're going to look at the coverings of the tabernacle there are four coverings so off my model I've picked them up here and uh, uh, we'll discuss them with some detail the first covering is the inner one remember when God speaks from the scriptures he speaks from the inside out when we talk we talk from the outside in so if I was to say the first covering I would take the outer one and then I would work through but scripture doesn't do that because God's on the inside he starts with the inside covering first so the first covering this is this one it's fine twisted linen sorry about the coloring of this one it's not quite right it should be purple blue and scarlet yarn and what is um, woven into them are cherubims what I describe to you as those animals with four heads is a picture of the cherubim and I think it was those I think understand I know I believe I think I think it was the cherubims that were here not they they've almost done these like angels so we're agreeing that they're cherubims in that I think the cherubims were a lot posher than that the second covering that we have is goat's hair so they've done this in sort of a, a white thing so I think it should be a dirty brown color because of the nature of what it is but this is the goat's hair the third covering is ram skins that are dyed red so we've got the color right so what it's made of the color is important and then these this was a, a very durable uh, covering over the whole thing these were hides of sea cows or seals that was waterproof and went over the whole thing so those are the four coverings now we're going to have a look at what these four coverings represent the first covering is not fine linen this uh, wall around the whole outer court was made of fine linen linen that was white remember linen speaks of righteousness so once we are in here this separates the righteous from the unrighteous a fine white linen wall there this wasn't white linen this covering that went over the tabernacle this was an embroidered one finely twisted linen embroidered with blue red and purple representing the spiritual holiness that the heart that makes the heart as it were beautiful so God is looking at the inside of us God is always looking at your heart you know sometimes we use that expression out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks I don't always agree with that scripture what a funny thing for a Bible teacher to say because I know sometimes the things that have come out of my mouth I don't think they reflect what's in my heart I hope they don't anyway uh, so sometimes they don't come from the heart they come from the fallen nature within me these things so the heart is what God looks at the heart is what's pure in his presence it's beautiful 
it's got all these wonderfully embroidered things in them these angelic beings what do the colors represent well white stalks of the purity my heart is pure because it has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus that's the difference big difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint the Old Testament saint couldn't have his heart cleansed by the blood he could only wash himself in his body to make himself presentable to God for worship but his heart was never right they were always at a distance from God but we have our hearts cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus so they're they're pure within us blue speaks of the heavenly nature and the divinity that is in our heart purple the royal and omnipotence of God and scarlet speaks of the suffering and the atonement they're the colors that this represents all of them significant to our hearts spiritual purity spiritual purity the inside of us the heart spiritual purity of the heart is not what we do not do is not what we do not do when we came here drugs sex and rock and roll yep yep when we were there around the cross the drugs sex and rock and roll fell away it just fell away because you're serious about following God that doesn't hang around the big stuff falls away it's funny the Bible talks about little foxes that ruin the vines that's not the big stuff the big stuff falls away it's the little foxes sometimes that we have to deal with so as this stuff it's as though this stuff here is about what we shouldn't do when we move further towards God these are what I call sins of commission I don't lie and cheat and steal anymore that fell off me a long time ago now that wouldn't say that in a, in a circumstance I might tell a lie but, but the habit of lying or cheating or stealing and doing that's gone that's gone sins of commission in here as I approach God they are sins of omission not what I did but things that I failed to do when that person was wanting my attention and I was too busy or couldn't be bothered that's a sin of omission something I failed to do but now I'm in here there should be no sin at all <laughs> you say you're joking Philip are you now proposing that we should live our lives and never sin I tell you something the church has conditioned us to believe it's impossible to live a life that we never sin do you believe it I'm sorry you see you've got to work out what you believe you believe what you want to believe you have to work out what you believe if you think listen it's impossible and I'll sin all my life 
you've, you've brought the, the, the standard right back here. Me, I'd rather have it right up here and keep pushing towards it and thinking it's possible to live in this life when I never sin. That sin has no part in me. I'm not talking about sins of commission. I've moved off from that. I'm not talking about sins of omission. I've moved off from that. I'm talking about living a life where I never sin at all. See, in there, if you looked at it, it would be breathtakingly beautiful. You can imagine, can't you? If you lived where God lived and you looked at what he did, I mean, no, no artist, sorry about this, Julia, no artist could paint this. I mean, it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. As you stood in that place, the breathtaking beauty, the gold of the glory of God, or even the gold of the menorah shining bright, sparkling off these angelic beings, these cherubim all around you. The four faces looking down at you. I believe we must push on so we never sin again. Otherwise we're saying the salvation that Christ purchased for us was not good enough to make it possible that a fallen person could ever be fully lifted up to a place that redemption wasn't good enough that the blood isn't strong enough that the power of God is not possible to do that now it could be that we'll sin all our lives and we won't reach to that point but let's press on yeah let's push on let's not accept lower standards than the standard don't be condemned when you sin when you fall down you don't lie on the floor crying do you unless it hurts i understand that you get up you get up you get up you get up and move on oh i could go somewhere else now i must stay with my notes the inward beauty of the heart do you know this verse ladies it's always pushed at the ladies let me read this one to you 1 peter 3 3 and 4 he says your beauty should not come from the outward adorning such as braiding of the hair and wearing of golden jewelry and fine clothes instead it should be that of a your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is of great worth in god's sight ever been slapped around the face with that one ladies that applies to men as well I know it's referenced to women but aren't men supposed to be like that as well having a quiet and a gentle spirit not something that's showy and outward but something that's in here that's pure isn't it interesting that the outside of us are sea cows so ugly and drab I can't see your beauty you look all right to me you've scrubbed up well 
but I can't really see your beauty. I would have to see inside your heart. And so I just see the outwardness. You should never judge a book by its cover, should you? You should get in there and read it. It might have had a lousy graphics designer doing the cover, I don't know. But see, God has planned it that way. That on the outside, it's just me. But on the inside, it's something precious. The second covering, here we are, strong, something strong and tough, something beautiful linen, but this is strong because it's going to be out there in all weathers. These are the hairs of goats woven together. Do you know in you there is a goat? Did you know that? It's always butting. It's always doing this. Instead of going like a lamb to the slaughter, you're butting, butting all the time. There's a goat nature in us that wants us always to have our own way. Always. So that's our goat skin. That's the beautiful inner heart. Mm, the goat skin. Now, what's the next one? Ram skins dyed red. You don't have to be great students to know what that represents. That represents the atoning blood of Christ. So, we've got a sandwich now, haven't we? A pure, beautiful, blood-washed heart. The inner centre of you, your spirit. The goat. That fallen nature that's in you. That's rebelling. The atoning blood of Christ. Let's make sure it's sandwiched in there between the purity of your heart and the atonement of the blood of Christ. You have to reckon the goat dead. He's not dead. If someone tells you that your old nature is dead, it's not. In fact, come along and let me upset you and you'll find that your old goat nature is not dead at all. But we have to keep it sandwiched between the atoning blood of Christ and the purity of a blood-washed heart. Romans 6 and 6 says this, For we know that our old self, our old nature that is, was crucified with him. That, 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 old, that old nature that we had was crucified with Christ. So that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from his sin. Well, that's wonderful. We've been freed from this, so this is gone. Surely your old sin nature is gone. Mm -mm. So that the body of sin might be done away with. That's not the best interpretation of that. The best interpretation is it should be rendered powerless. I have an old nature in me 
that if I don't keep it sandwiched between the blood and the purity of my heart, will rise up and start to do things that it shouldn't do. I have to render it powerless. Don't let it rise up. Consider it dead, dead. Something that's dead doesn't rebel or react. If you kick a dead body, he's not gonna complain. This is dead. Your old sin nature must be reckoned dead. See, there's nothing I can do with my old sin nature within me. I can't take it to church and make it good. I can't make it learn the Ten Commandments. I can't teach it the scriptures. This old nature that's in me, I've just got to reckon it dead. Why'd you do that, God? Why just didn't you take it away? And just make life a whole lot simpler for us all. Why do we always have to keep on struggling with this stuff and fighting with it and when it rises up, put it down? Everything God does is perfect. He's transforming you into the character of Christ. Do you believe that? One day you will have the character of Christ. You will have a body. You will be the person you are with your personality. That's it. But your character will be transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, he had to leave that old nature within you. So you fight with it and you struggle with it and you beat it and you put it down and you reckon it dead. So Christ lives through us. Oh, it's going to be nice on the other side. In the next world, you won't have to fight with yourself anymore. Do you get fed up fighting with yourself? Get up, get up, fed up arguing with yourself and telling yourself off and putting yourself right and oh, it's tiring, isn't it? The longer you live, sometimes I think of the worse it gets. Because, see, God is finally tuning you more and more and more. So when you, just a slight thing, you get offended with yourself. And you go, I never used to worry about that. I wouldn't even give that a second thought. Because as you're pressing on and pressing on and pressing on, it gets more irksome in a way. God keeps the hardest challenges to the end. So be encouraged. <laughs> See, Abraham, he said, Abraham, when he was 75 years of age, you think he had done it all by then? No, Abraham, come on, leave your family, leave your home, leave all of this stuff and come with me. And he goes, where are we going? Oh, he says, I'm not telling you. I'm taking you to a city that I've designed that's beautiful and wonderful and glorious just come with me so he leaves it all and then on the journey he has to release his wife twice so that she's taken in to a harem with other leading people remember him doing that i won't go there 
Then he goes through the, the whole Ishmael thing. He's getting older now, isn't he? It's getting harder. You think it should be getting... And then when he gets to the about 115 or something, God says, now take your son, your only son, the thing that is most precious to you, and kill him. You thought, God, how could you do that? Surely it should have got easier. It got tougher. But you see, he had got himself to a place where he knew the promises of God. And he knew if he stabbed him to death, which he would have done without a shadow of a doubt, that God would have raised him from the dead. I can't wait to see what's coming down the track. Okay. Why? Why? Because he's trying to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. See, if Christ can give it all, so can I. I don't want anything less than the best. And to get that, I have to go all the way. And they're all there in the Bible. Men and women that went all the way so they could reach that place. The fourth covering, the sea cows. No beauty. All the beauty is in the heart, in the inner man. I'm going to go on now to talk about two other things here. This is the altar where sacrifices are made. It's made of brass. This is the basin where the, the priests going in and out had to wash themselves continually. Let's just have a little look at what these represent for us. Having decided that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, the Son of God, having decided that with your sense knowledge, and you've come through and the Holy Spirit has confirmed it to you, so it's not a doubt, a question in your mind, having first reached out to him, the Holy Spirit confirmed it to you. The first thing that we come to is this brass altar here. It represents for us the cross of Christ. In this Christian life of ours, you can't get past the cross without certain things taking place. You might want to push on, but you have to deal with some stuff at the cross. Let's see what the four sides of this brazen altar represents for us. Looking at the first side, what we find is that we have forgiveness from all our sins. I believe, you always know what I know now when I say that, don't you? You know clearly what I mean. So if you don't believe that, it's all right. We can't fall out, okay? okay. I believe that when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he saw me. And he saw all the sins that I would commit. 
in my life. And he paid the redemptive price for my sins so that in the sight of God they could all be forgiven for Jesus Christ. So my sins, past, present and future, have all been forgiven already by Christ. Now, some people have the idea that God will only forgive you your sins if you go to him and say sorry for your sin. But somehow if you don't do that, God won't forgive you. Well, if that's the case, what about all the sins that you didn't know that you committed? You couldn't have said sorry for them but because you didn't commit them. Well, you say, well, I didn't commit them, so they don't count. Oh, yeah, they do. If it's a sin, it's a sin. If I go break the law out there and the policeman pulls me up and I say, I didn't know, he goes, sorry, mate, the law's the law. So going to God and saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin, that's not why he forgives you. He forgives you because of the blood of Christ and because you have faith in the blood of Christ and what Christ has done for you on the cross. It's my faith in Christ is why God forgives me of my sin. So the forgiveness of sins, as soon as I commit a sin, my advocate Jesus is before the Father. He is my high priest and he's making intercession for me. So the minute I commit a sin, the blood of Jesus washes it away. Whether I say sorry or not makes no difference. That's what I believe. You don't have to believe that, you can believe something else. But I believe that's what the gospel is. You say, that's too good to be true. Listen, this gospel is better than what you ever think it is. I think it's fantastic and wonderful and glorious, but it's better than what I ever think it is. This salvation is a wonderful, glorious thing. So, as I come here and I look here into the, the brass altar, my sins are forgiven through faith in Christ. That's the first thing that happens. Some Christians go to church every Sunday and repent of their sins. Well, that's not a good thing to do because it'll hold you back. We lay a foundation of repentance and we have to move on now. We have to move on in this Christian life. Just always keep going back and repenting and repenting and repenting will stop you moving on. It's weary repetition that tires God. He says, oh, come on, move on, move on in this thing. Now, if, you, if you're blasé about sin and you don't care, well, we're talking about something else. But that's not what Christians are. If a, if a Christian is blasé about his sin and couldn't care less, there's a big question mark over whether that person's even given their hearts to, to Christ or not. You know, sometimes we pe treat people as Christians and we know how they're living and if we, could, we should take a step back and think, is this person really a Christian? Now, you don't not love them, but you look at them differently. 
thinking, oh, I was treating you as though you were a Christian, but by what you're saying and you don't care about the sinful life you're living, I've got to take a step back and treat you a little bit differently. Treat you as though you were an outsider. We come to the second side. And what we find that he has dealt with sin. Sin in us. Not the sins that we commit. We commit sins because sin is resident within us. It's like the trunk of a tree that's there and the branches and the fruit come out of it and that's sin or the sins. But there is something in us called sin. It's almost like a driving motor that before we come to Christ, we just keep sinning. We can't stop it. We actually enjoy it. And it's, are you surprised when sinners sin? Are you surprised when your neighbor chucks all his rubbish over the fence or is abusive to you or hits your car and doesn't bother telling you and drives on? You think this is terrible. Well, I understand that's socially unacceptable, but that's what sinners do. They sin. They can't stop it. They sin all the time. So don't get angry with them. Pray for them. Pray that they might come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and so they'll stop sinning. So sin is the source, like a, a motor that drives us. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who had no sin. He had no sin. It doesn't say that he never sinned. He had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus, who had no sin, was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So when Christ went to the cross, he said, give me that thing inside you, that motor of sin, and I will take it upon myself. So although I've never sinned, I will take the sin the motor of sin from you and put it in me and I will take it from every person who's ever lived in the world. I will take their generators of sin and put them inside of me and if you come to me in faith, you see this righteousness that I have inside of me, this motor of righteousness, I will come and place that within you, within your life. So instead of now automatically sinning, you automatically do the righteous thing. Because Christ now lives inside of us. He became sin. For God made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. Not because I've done anything apart from accepting what Christ has done for me on the cross. You're not a sinner saved by grace. Please don't define yourself like that. I understand it's quite a common phrase. You're a saint who from time to time slips up, sins. You're not a sinner anymore. Don't define yourself as a sinner. Define yourself as a saint. 
God made Jesus to be sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Christ has made unto us wisdom, holiness, righteousness and redemption. There are two types of righteousness, you know this. It's imputed righteousness and a worked out righteousness. When you came to Christ as a sinner, he clothed you in his righteousness. So when he looked upon you, a bit like the prodigal son put on garments of righteousness, that is an outward appearance. So God can look at you and see you as righteous because he's clothed you. He's imputed righteousness to you. But inside, you have to work out righteousness. You have to watch when you're reading righteousness, which one it is, imputed or worked out. Otherwise, our theology gets a bit bent. Hebrews 9 and 26, when Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Christ died on the cross, he did away with sin once and for all. There are millions of people out there that Christ has done away with their sin. The motor that's in them that causes them to sin, he's dealt with it, but they haven't come to Christ in faith. And so it isn't theirs. Christ died once to eradicate these motors of sin that drive us forward. When you put your faith in him, he does away with sin, singular. The third aspect of the altar here, this sin nature, this thing, he dealt with this. He didn't take it away. I've told you that, that still remains. But he's dealt with it in a very special way. Romans 6 and 6. I read this before. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Done away with is rendered inoperative. We escape slavery to sin by reckoning our nature of sin dead we've got to reckon it dead we've got to count it dead if we don't count the nature within us as dead the devil will keep come and promoting sin in our lives like I said there's no remedy for the old nature apart from reckoning it dead this is how I like to imagine it when Christ was hanging on the cross, I was in Christ on the cross. So when Christ died on the cross, I died on the cross with him. That's a legitimate way to think. When Christ was hanging there, I was in Christ. Say, so Philip, that was 2,000 years ago. No, no, I was in the mind of Christ 2,000 years ago. It just took me 2,000 years to get here. And so spiritually, I see myself in Christ. 
and he put to death the sin nature within me if we don't get it and believe it we will always sin it will always be manipulating us and pushing us around and telling us what to do and causing us to fall and causing us to trap trip sorry we mustn't do that when Jesus died the old man the goat in me was crucified with him on the cross we come to the fourth side which talks about a burnt offering Jesus was a burnt offering there were four offering uh, sorry seven different offerings that were burnt to Christ the first offering that would have been brought uh, there was burnt offerings grain offerings sin offerings guilt offerings ordination offerings fellowship offerings can't go all there tonight we just deal with the burnt offering so Christ was a burnt offering it's the first offering spoken of and it, it refers to giving of oneself wholly completely unto God so that offering would be taken and it would be put on the fire and completely burnt till there was absolutely nothing left we have to offer ourselves totally unto God just like Jesus did when Jesus went to the cross remember what they said they said come down come down and prove who you are remember when he was tempted by Satan Satan said listen I'll give you the whole world I'll give you everything that you're supposed to have you don't have to die to get it and then when Peter was talking to him one day he said Jesus you don't have to die you don't have to you got it wrong see they were all saying the same things no Jesus said I I'm a burnt offering I have got to completely die on the cross if I don't completely die then you won't live I must be like a seed that goes into the ground and dies so that life can come forth into you thank you Jesus for not getting off the cross or listening to Peter or bending your knee to the devil but thank you that you drove yourself all the way to the cross and died if he dies so must we because we're not simply followers of Christ even as followers of Christ we would have to die because we'd follow him into death but we are in Christ so just as Christ has died I have died I've just woken up to the reality that I have to die if I'm gonna get this life if I'm gonna get this I have to die as real as Jesus had to die my life must be a burnt offering oh. say how keep listening therefore I urge you brothers in the view of God's mercy you all know this verse I love this verse I preached on a series on my favorite verses and this came out number one Romans 12 and verse 1 to me it's the greatest verse 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship, or this is your reasonable service to die. It's reasonable to do it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. Good to know what the will of God is for your life? Die. 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 Die die and on that happy note we'll bring our evening to an end god bless you all thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it and that you will come back next week for some more great teaching if you would like to support the work of arise ministry you can head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make an online donation to the work we do. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.